Welcome to Mountain View Church Audio, coming to you from the Wilderness City, Whitehorse, Yukon. We strive to introduce people to Jesus through scripture, biblical instruction, and prayer with authenticity and vibrancy. You don't need to know anything about the Bible. Just sit back, relax, and let God do the rest. Don't you hate it when your plans get interrupted? You know, that feeling you get when you have a day all planned out and then something blows up your schedule? How do you respond? Do you respond with frustration or anger? Does having your plans trashed steal your peace? Or do you take things as they come patiently? I'm currently in the process of rearranging my working schedule so that I can fit more time into doing ministry and schoolwork for the seminary program that I'm in. And over the last four weeks, I actually moved from working a five-day work week as a mechanic to a three-day work week so that I can have Mondays and Fridays to spend here at the church, basically preparing sermons, dealing with ministry stuff, and doing schoolwork. It was a great plan. In my head, I thought, well, now I'll have eight uninterrupted hours to do all this stuff. It'll be great. And it has been great. But I have absolutely not once had eight uninterrupted hours. That has not happened. Week after week, every single time that I'm here, I get interrupted. And honestly, it was super annoying at first. But as time goes on, I'm starting to see the bigger picture. It took a while, but I'm seeing now that God has been trying to show me something. See, one day, Lord willing, I would love to be in full-time ministry serving the church and serving Jesus. And it's becoming pretty obvious to me that if I really want that for my life, I'm going to need to learn how to submit my plans for myself to God's plans for me. I'm not just going to be able to write down a five-day agenda for the week and expect that nothing will interfere with it because, first of all, that isn't realistic. But second of all, it also means that I'm expecting to be in the driver's seat when really God's always the one in the driver's seat. In life, God will upset your plans a lot. What really matters is how we respond to these interruptions. When you think you know what the next day, week, month, or year will look like and God changes it all on you, you really realize at that moment that you only have control over how you respond. So, are you going to be angry? Are you going to fight to get your own way? Are you going to spend all your time whining and do a poor job of the work that's been set before you? Or will you make a different choice? Will you choose to do the best with what you have, even if it isn't what you expected? Or will you treat others with love and with kindness, even if they showed up at a bad time in your life? Will you have peace in life regardless of your circumstances and trust that God's plan for you is a better plan than the one you had for yourself? Today we're going to look at a story in the Bible about a man who had no problem trusting God in the driver's seat of life. A man who had peace in every situation he found himself in. This man's name was Joseph and his faith in God was truly heroic. My name is Yolandi. I'll be reading Hebrews 11 verse 1 to 2 and verse 22. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Welcome to Mountain View Church. My name is Elijah and I'm one of the pastoral apprentices here at Mountain View. 
Now, if you've been with us for a little while, you know that we're working through our teaching and preaching series out of chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. And every single week, we're going through the individual stories of men and women who came many thousands of years before us, and we're going through these stories, and we're trying to identify um, what these people's faith looked like. We want to understand their faith a little bit better, and we want to see how their faith impacted the decisions they made and the way that they lived their lives. We're currently on week 11, and this week, we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. This week, we are studying a very small kind of cryptic verse that if you don't know the story it's pointing to, it's going to mean absolutely nothing to you. The story comes out of the Old Testament book of Genesis, and honestly, if you just look at this verse in isolation, uh, it doesn't, it really doesn't mean much. Hebrews 11 chapter, uh, or Hebrews chapter 11 verse 22 reads, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Honestly, it's, it's totally cryptic. It's almost even kind of weird. Like, if you don't have a framework for this, um, one of the big questions you might be asking is, why is he talking about his bones? What do you do with bones? It's sort of a weird thought that doesn't totally resonate with us. And because, you know, we're looking at this verse and, and it really, you know, doesn't give us much information at all, we have to go back and look at the story that it's pointing to. And the story of Joseph it encompasses an entire 13 chapters in the book of Genesis. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that I like to talk. Um, it's one of the gifts that God gave me. But even I, uh, I do not have the endurance to read all 13 of these chapters to you today and preach on them. And so suffice it to say, we will not be going through that entire account because it's, it's really large. But we still need to know who is Joseph. And we need to know what, we can, what can we learn from his faith. Right? The verse reads that by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention and so on and so forth. So what, what was it about his life that impacted his decisions at the end of his life? These are all important questions and we're going to kind of go through them. Now, before we dive into the story, I want you to know one important fact about Joseph that is pretty unique so far in our studies. Joseph had a much different experience with God than all of his family members. For the last few weeks, we've been studying a family that God had picked out of the world and had chose this family to bless them, to do great works in the world through them. And Joseph is now the fourth generation in that family. And so Abraham and Sarah, his great grandfather and grandmother, Isaac, his grandfather, and Jacob, his father, all of these figures, all of his family members, they all heard the voice of God directly. And Joseph didn't. In fact, in 13 chapters, as we go through Joseph's story, we never actually see the words, the Lord said to Joseph. Joseph's interactions weren't like that of his family members. They had direct communication from God. They, they actually heard his voice. He commanded them to do things and they got to choose. Either they would do them or they wouldn't. But they knew exactly what God wanted them to do. But Joseph's interactions with God were indirect. Really, you know, all that, we, all that we get as far as interaction is that we, we learn from the Genesis account that Joseph had, um, he had dreams and he had the ability to interpret dreams. It was a gift that God had given him. And so through the dreams that he has and the dreams that other people have, um, and then through the, his ability to interpret them, he's able to kind of see what God's trying to tell him, but it's not direct communication. 
Although just because he didn't have this direct communication like his family members, it doesn't mean um, that, that he wasn't able to follow God well. And in fact, we read three times in this account that the Bible is going to tell us that the Lord was with Joseph. So we know that, that Joseph and God, actually got, he, had a, he had a relationship with God. It was just a little bit different than that of his family. And this is really, really important for us, guys, because in our modern day, we need to know how to respond to God's leading in our own lives. Honestly, God's not going to beam a message into your head and, and tell you what to do in your life. He's not going to tell you uh, what job to take. He's not going to tell you which person to marry. You know, you're not going to wake up in the morning and hear this voice like, marry Susan or marry Billy. That's, that's just not going to happen for you. He's not going to tell you what house to move into, whether you should be a renter um, or purchase it yourself. That's, that's not what we expect from God. But you know what? Just because we don't get these direct instructions from God, it doesn't mean that we can't follow him well. It doesn't mean we can't follow him the way that Joseph did. Because much of following God in our lives, it depends on how we respond to the events in our life that are out of our control. And as we unpack Joseph's story and we look at his life, his story shows us a truth that is absolutely key to having a fruitful life that glorifies God. Because Joseph himself, in his life, he responded really well in all sorts of situations. His life story shows us that peace in life is cultivated by bringing our plans for ourselves into submission to God's bigger plan for humanity. Now, Joseph is an individual. Well, how did his life start? Um, the account starts in chapter 37 of Genesis. And as we read about Joseph, we find out that he's the second youngest of 12 brothers. 12 brothers who are sons of Jacob or Israel. And if you, don't, if you want to know about Jacob and Israel, please go back a week and listen to Aaron Monus's message on it because he did a great job. Um, but Joseph, he was almost the youngest child. He was the second youngest child. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that this family, starting with Abraham, that there's been a pattern in this family. And the pattern is basically family hostility. There are big problems in the family. And Joseph's generation, well, there's, there's, uh, there's no exception there. And Joseph experiences the same kind of parental favoritism that we've seen in the last few weeks. But in Joseph's case, his father, Jacob, favored him over all of his other brothers, which might sound good, um, but it actually had a disastrous consequence. It turned out that because of the way that his father favored him, all of his brothers hated him. And we don't have to dig that deep into the Bible to find that. It, it, Bible comes right out and just says it in um, chapter 37, verse 4. It reads, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And, and this is the relationship that he has with his brothers. This is kind of the position that he's in in his family. And then the beginning of his story, uh, Joseph has two dreams. And he rightly understands that these dreams are not the kind of normal dreams that you and I have, but they actually have deep meaning, that they're prophecies from God. And I would love to go into detail, but, you know, we, we have limited time. But the, the primary idea that comes out of these dreams, the interpretation that Joseph draws from these dreams at the young age of 17, he understands that God is telling him that one day he will be exalted above all his family. That he'll, that he'll have authority over his brothers and even his father. 
which is a, which is a wild notion. And so Joseph being a 17 year old and um, I guess not having the kind of foresight to know how this would impact his relationship with his family. He simply just goes and tells his father and his brothers, Hey, you guys are going to serve me deal with it basically. And as you can imagine, it goes over horribly. Now his brothers who already hate him, they just hate him more. They hate him even more. And his father, you know, his father rebukes him. Um, and so this causes a bit of tension in the family. And now this is kind of a turning point in Joseph's life. And this is very early on in his life because from this starting point, Joseph's control over the direction of his life completely vanishes. His life simply becomes a story of him responding to life's events over and over and over again. He gets thrust into all of these different situations and he just reacts to them. And in all the events of life, Joseph basically becomes a participant. He's not a leader. As we go through his story, you'll see he's more of a bystander than a director. And I I submit that what is actually happening in his life is God is orchestrating a life for him. And this life has many ups and downs. As we go through the story, though, I want you to understand the remarkable thing about the story is not the events themselves. They are incredible. Uh, and you can see that God is working in all of them. But what's remarkable about this whole account is how Joseph responds to all of these events in life. Fair to say, I've gone through a few of these faith heroes with you guys over the last few weeks, and Joseph is the first figure in the Bible that I've had the pleasure of studying where I can say Joseph really behaved like a hero in every event. He really modeled um, the heroic behavior that we're trying to, to get out of the Heroes of Faith series. Now, to go into his story, I mean, so Joseph tells his brothers um, about these dreams. They hate him. And later on, uh, while they're away from home, they're away from their father, Joseph's brothers, they actually have this plot. They're going to, they just, they want to kill him. They want to be rid of him for good. Um, But they change their mind. So that's good news for Joseph. They change their mind and they decide, hey, instead of killing him, why don't we just sell him into slavery? Then we won't have the guilt of having killed our brother, um, you know, which is marginally better, um, I guess. And as a result of this, Joseph gets sold as a slave and he ends up in Egypt. And his brothers, you know, they basically at that point, they wash their hands of him and they assume uh, that they'll never see him again. And he ends up in Egypt and, and he ends up in the house of a man named Potiphar. This man named Potiphar purchases Joseph as a slave. And what we find in the account is actually that Joseph somehow becomes very successful in Potiphar's house and Potiphar um, extends trust to him, right? Potiphar looks at him and and he trusts him with his household and he's given a great deal of power in that context because um, as we'll see over and over again, the Lord was with Joseph. God established him in the situation and when he is given power, Joseph doesn't abuse it. He actually deals justly and fairly. It's kind of an incredible thing because if we put ourselves in his shoes, having been sold into slavery, we'd probably look for somebody weaker than us to abuse. It's very often what happens to people when they experience hardship, but not so with Joseph. Instead, like I mentioned, he deals justly and fairly with Potiphar's, um, with, with Potiphar's goods and his household and his servants. Genesis 39 verse 6 reads, So he, he being Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. That doesn't happen for a man like Joseph unless he's dealing honestly and fairly, right? Potiphar purchases him. He watches how Joseph conducts himself and he says, hey, this is the guy that I want running stuff. 
and after a while, you know, he's successful and he establishes himself by God's grace in Potiphar's house. And the next big event in his life is that actually Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him, right? Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph and attempts to seduce him. And, you know, I think we can understand that they definitely would have had the opportunity to sneak around um, and be together if they wanted to. But Joseph does the right thing and he declines all of her advances, And his perspective is right, right? He's got kind of a two-level perspective. On one hand, he's unwilling to betray his master Potiphar, right? Potiphar's put him in all of this authority. And so when he's talking, when he's talking to Potiphar's wife, he says this, chapter 39, verse 9, he is not greater, he being Potiphar again, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. So on one level, Joseph's trying to deal honorably among the people he's with, right? Potiphar literally owns him, but the right thing to do is still the right thing to do regardless of your circumstances. And so he declines, he declines Potiphar's wife's advances. But his second level of perspective is not simply that he would be wronging Potiphar, but that he would be sinning against God. Continuing on in that verse, it reads, how then can I do this great wickedness? and sin against God, right? So on one level, he doesn't want to betray uh, a man who trusts him, but on the, on the other hand, and the, the primary motivation for him is he wants to act honorably in the presence of God. And what does he get for his trouble? Well, I mean, like having rejected Potiphar's wife and doing the moral correct thing, she accuses him of trying to rape her, um, which is, I guess, yeah, it's pretty uncool to do that. Uh, He does the right thing and he gets accused of a sex crime and he basically gets convicted and he gets thrown in jail. And for most of us, when we think about being in that position, we ourselves, if we're honest, would probably become cruel or jaded, right? We'd fill up with hate. We'd feel victimized. But not so with Joseph. He doesn't become cruel and he doesn't become jaded. He ends up in this jail and again, God establishes Joseph and he makes him successful, right? The Lord was with Joseph. He makes Joseph successful in this prison context. Joseph does really well and he is given basically as much authority in this jail as anybody can have. He, he has authority over all the other prisoners. He has authority over the administration of everything in the jail. And even though he's given that kind of power, you know, however small you might see it as, even with that amount of power at his disposal and having been wronged now twice, he still remains compassionate. And in fact, there's two men that come before him and they don't even, they don't even bring their concerns to him. They actually are just, he sees them, right? He, ha, he sees them and he notices them and he notices that they're distressed. He sees that they're troubled, these two men. Verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 7 says, why are your faces downcast today? Right? He looks at these men, he sees that they're distressed, and he wants to help them. And they both tell him that they've had dreams, and the dreams are distressing them greatly. And as we've mentioned, Joseph has the uh, God-given gift of interpreting dreams, and so he interprets their dreams. And a few years go by, and if you're Joseph, you think nothing's going to happen from this, but eventually, one of these men becomes a servant for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has dreams as well and Pharaoh is complaining about them and he's asking all throughout the kingdom who can tell me the interpretation of these dreams that I have and then this one man that Joseph helped remembers hey I know the perfect guy he interpreted the dream that I had perfectly and so Joseph ends up getting brought out of 
out of prison. And you look at that and you see, well, that could only be a work of God. That's only a work of God impacting the life of Joseph. Again, Joseph just being a bystander in his own life. And being brought before Pharaoh, Joseph again rightly interprets the dreams that Joseph or that Pharaoh shares with him. And Joseph tells him, he gives him the correct interpretation. He tells him that there will be a great famine and that this famine will last many years and will absolutely devastate Egypt and all the known world. And after telling him what the dreams mean, he goes on to say in chapter 41, verse 33, Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select discerning and a wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Then he proceeds to instruct Pharaoh on how to manage the food of Egypt and how to manage their grain stores to prepare for the famine and not just survive the famine, but how to actually thrive and be a a nation um, that can gather power because of the the correct planning, right? He's basically saying to Pharaoh, listen, you have one shot to do this. And if you don't do it the right way, your civilization will crumble. So pick the right guy and do these things and everything will be okay for you. And having listened to this this instruction from Joseph, Pharaoh then actually decides that the wise and discerning man should be Joseph himself, right? Joseph says, do these things. And Pharaoh says, well, in his own mind, he decides, well, who better to do it than the guy who told me uh, what to do in the first place? And now this is a really wild thing to wrap your head around, right? When Joseph is given this power, this vast, immeasurable power over a nation. At this time, Egypt is one of the most powerful nations in the known world. Well, Joseph has all sorts of options before him. He can do practically anything. He can do anything he wants. He's, he's, he's given all of this power and authority, but he does the very thing that he said was right to Pharaoh. See, it's one thing to tell somebody, hey, if I were you, I'd do this because it's the right thing. It's another thing entirely to do the right thing when you're given the option to do it yourself. And when Joseph is, he doesn't chicken out. He does the right thing. And to kind of add another layer to this, he's doing the right thing. He's managing a nation for good and for the good of its inhabitants in a nation that he was sold into slavery to, right? Presumably, there's got to be some animosity there, right? These people purchased him as a slave, but he manages the nation for the good of the people who live there. And he doesn't abuse his authority in any way. Over and over and over again, Joseph does the right thing. He always does the right thing. Joseph never sees himself as a victim. And I think that's really important because especially in our modern culture, if you are perceived to be a victim, then you're allowed to get away with doing the wrong thing in a lot of cases. In fact, one of the ways that we kind of, we, we kind of dumb down evil in the world is we look at the life that somebody lived before they did something wrong and if we decide enough bad things happen to them, they're enough of a victim that what they did wrong doesn't really count. And if anybody's a a victim in this story, it's Joseph, but he doesn't see himself that way and because he doesn't see himself as a victim, he doesn't desire to have vengeance on people or act out cruelly. Instead, he trusts that God is doing some good thing throughout his entire life, and he just submits to it over and over and over again. He sees himself as an an agent of God's will in the world, and he just does his best to do the right thing in every situation that he finds himself in. And later, now he's in this powerful position, later he sees his brothers again, and it's been many years, and they, they don't recognize him. 
And at this point, Joseph is the second most powerful man in the, in the nation of Egypt. The only more powerful man in Egypt than Joseph is Pharaoh himself. And so, jo again, Joseph can do anything he wants, right? His brothers come before him, the same ones that betrayed him, that sold him into slavery all those years ago. He can do anything any that he wants in the moment. But instead of responding to their treachery with vengeance or anger, he responds with grief, in fact, over their broken relationship. We actually read in the account that he weeps, that he has sorrow because they're distressed over the broken relationship that they have. He also has joy for being reunited with them. Only good things, the kind of feelings that a hero should have about that situation. And through this very, very long and really interesting, actually, but very long process, he brings his entire family to safety in Egypt. And he brings them to safety in the midst of this huge and, and enormous famine that's going on in the whole world. And he brings his fathers, he brings his brothers, their wives, and all their children. And he does this not out of obligation, but out of love and compassion for them. He's quick to forgive the wrongs that are done to them, or that have been done to him. And when he reveals himself to his brothers and he, and he tells them what his, what his big plan is to bring them and keep them safe, when he reveals himself to his brothers, you can really see his heart and his motivation and his understanding about the whole situation. Chapter 45, verses 4 and 5 read, I am your brother, right? He's telling them for the first time, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Right? His perspective is correct. Yeah, they wronged him, but there was something bigger going on. He correctly sees, continuing on in verse 8, same chapter. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Yes, on a material level, his brothers sold him into slavery. But on a spiritual level, this was a part of God's good plan for him. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. In the end, the prophetic dreams that Joseph had as a young man, they actually come true. They were vindicated. God does place Joseph in authority over all of his family. But the remarkable thing is that never once did Joseph have to manipulate anyone or cheat to make it happen. He never had to do that. When we think of getting power in this world, we very often and rightly think about, you know, climbing a ladder and pushing other people down so that we can get ahead. But Joseph never has to do this. Joseph, in his life, with all the ups and downs, he had a real peace regarding his circumstances. And that's because, as his story shows, peace in life, a real enduring peace that changes you from the inside out, peace in life is cultivated by bringing the plans that we have for ourselves into submission to God's bigger plan for humanity. And one day, years after his family comes to Egypt, one day Joseph's father dies. And at this point, all of his brothers are, are afraid that Joseph will now punish him, right? They, they still don't believe that he's forgiven him, and they're afraid that he wants vengeance, and they think that the only reason he wasn't punishing them was to keep his father happy. And so they, they come to him and they're begging for their lives. Please do not hurt us, right? And his reply to his brothers, the ones who wronged him, who betrayed him, who sought out in life to harm him, his reply is one of the most famous statements in the Bible. It's 
chapter 50 of Genesis, verses 19 and 20, Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Right? Do not fear. I'm not going to judge you. That's not my job. Am I in the place of God? As for you, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's an unbelievable way to respond to people who were cruel to you. But if your perspective is the same as Joseph's, you actually have it within you to, to behave like that, even when you're confronted by people who have harmed you. Joseph's entire life modeled his faith. The story of the life that he lived is just faith upon faith that God was good and that God's good plan was a perfect plan. And because that's true, because God's plan was perfect, Joseph willingly submitted himself fully to God's plan and he had peace. In his life, Joseph modeled faith, yes. But even in his death, his faith was displayed. To be honest with you guys, I wrestled to understand the core aspect of faith in the passage that we're studying, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. I'll read it again. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Right? I looked at that and then I looked at the story of Joseph and it, it seemed confusing to me. Why is this pointing to his death, the end of his life? His life was the thing that really seems to model faith. So what is it about the end of his life? You know, and I guess I know what it means, but like, what does it mean? And I wrestled with it. But it, you know what? It's actually quite simple, but it's also very, very profound. See, Joseph knew that his family would grow into a great nation. He knew about God's promise, this, the kind of promise that we've actually been studying here for the last month. He knew that a great nation would be would be held captive for over four centuries, right? The great nation that would come of his lineage. And he knew that that great nation would one day be freed by God and that God would bring them to the, the land that he promised them. And Joseph knew it because this promise that God had made to his great-grandfather Abraham many years ago was trustworthy. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, we read this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Joseph had always trusted God and it seemed like there was no point in stopping now. And so because he knew that this was true, that this would one day come to pass, he, he spoke these last words to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verses 24-25. He says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. God will be with you. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Right? He restates a promise that God had made over and over for four generations. He restates it to his brothers to remind them. And he reiterates the thought, God will surely visit you. The Lord will be with you, right? The Lord was with Joseph and he made him, he made him succeed and it went well for Joseph. And Joseph's saying, the Lord will be with you too. God will surely visit you, he says. And then he gives them a final command. 
basically his dying breath, he says, and you shall carry up my bones from here. He made them swear that they would do it. Joseph displayed faith in his life, but even in death, he wanted to point to God's perfect, trustworthy plan. He wanted to declare God to be an oath keeper. Joseph was basically saying, I'm going to die, okay, but you're not going to forget about me. And you're not going to forget about God's promises either. So don't you dare bury me, right? Don't you dare forget about me and don't you dare forget about God's promises. For as long as you have my bones with you, my remains with you, you will have to talk about my life and God's goodness and the way that he cared for me and all of you. And you'll have to explain to your children and your children will have to explain to their children why you've kept my bones. And one day you will lay my bones to rest. You will. And in that same moment, you'll see that God's good promise to bring you home has been fulfilled. Therefore, my life and my death will both serve to testify that God's plan is perfect and good. God has never failed and he simply never will. For Joseph, even in death, peace could only be found by submitting to God's plan for humanity. Even in death is the most true thing about Joseph. And he wasn't wrong. One day, the people of Israel do leave Egypt. They get let out by a man named Moses. Stay tuned next week. Aaron's going to be unpacking Moses' story. But in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, which is the book that follows Genesis, we read these words. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Right? They did remember. He asked them to keep his bones with him, to serve, to remind them, and they remembered. What I just read happened at least 400, closer to 500 years after. And those bones that he, he was sure would make it to the promised land, they did. If we go to the sixth book in the Bible, there was a man named Joshua who leads the people of Israel into the land that God promises them. And we read in chapter 24, verse 32, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. And for those of you who don't know, Shechem is the very place that Joseph's father Jacob's bones were buried. So everything, everything Joseph knew would happen, happened. His faith in life and his faith in death, they, it all proved reliable. God is going to use things in life that are hard, really hard things to bring about great results. He does it all the time. And in Joseph's life, many tragic things happened to him. There was betrayal, false accusations, persecution, and hatred. But all of it amounted to a really wonderful thing happening. And it, it should follow then that later on in human history, there would be something worse. In fact, the hardest thing, the most tragic event that's ever happened. It follows then that that event would bring about the most beautiful and the most perfect result moving forward. We look at Joseph and I think we're, we're correct in saying he was a good man. Joseph was a good guy, right? We should remember him as such, a very good man. But there was a man who came along several thousand years later 
who is much better than Joseph. And his name was Jesus Christ. Jesus was the better Joseph. And in the same way, Jesus' life testified to God's good plan. Jesus was the son of God who came to earth to do the will of his heavenly father. And everything that happened in Jesus' life served to testify to God's good plan. Every last thing he did was in submission to the will of his father. And similar to Joseph, Jesus' death also testified to God's good plan. Jesus, being the Son of God, fully God and fully man, he comes to earth, right? He comes to earth and his primary purpose in being here is to bear the burden of sin that humanity incurs. Joseph was correct when he was afraid to sin against God because there's no worse thing that you can do. Sinning against God is the most the most evil thing that a, a human being can do, and we all do it all the time, and rightly so, we bear pe a penalty for it. I'm a sinner, and the only thing I have to pay for my guilt is my life. That's all I can offer up. What do, you, what do you give the God who made everything around you? Do you take something that's his and give it to him and say, hey, we're square? It doesn't work that way. The penalty for sin is death, and we're all sinners, and so we need something to fix that. And so Jesus' death also testified to God's good plan because he came to this world to die and the very fact that his body was, was broken and he was killed on a cross is evidence of God's good plan. And in the same way, horrible things happened to Jesus while he was here. It wasn't simply his death on the cross. Um, that was awful. Jesus also experienced betrayal. He also experienced false accusation and persecution and hatred, and murder. Unlike Joseph, Jesus was murdered. He was murdered by the very people he came to save, the people that he came to, to purchase back from their debt of sin. But through it all, Jesus too had peace. He came to earth knowing full well that he would be delivered up to death to pay the debt of sin that mankind had incurred, but he had peace. Coming to earth and dying was not, a, was not a possibility. It was the entire purpose that he came here for. And he lived a human life on this earth knowing how his life would end. But he had peace. Because whether you're Joseph, whether you're me, or maybe someone like you, or maybe even if you're Jesus, whatever, whoever you are, peace in life is cultivated in bringing our plans for ourselves into submission to God's bigger plan for humanity. God's plan is the only good plan. It's the only one that will succeed. And all of our other little plans that we have for ourselves need to fall under that big plan. Or we'll never have peace. We'll never have joy. And we won't glorify God with our lives. Instead, we'll be focused on trying to show how good we are at figuring life out. But Jesus, see... Was, he was so, Joseph was so similar to Jesus in so many ways, but Jesus went a step further than Joseph. Both their lives and their deaths testified to and demonstrated God's good plan to save people. But while Joseph was just able to save people from a famine, Jesus went way further. Jesus saves people from death itself. Joseph, well, he died and he stayed dead, but Jesus did not. Jesus went a step further because he rose from the grave and his resurrection 
three days after being murdered, it demonstrates in a matchless way how God's good plan is the only perfect plan that we should be following. Jesus was murdered by the, the very people he came to save, and it's a tragedy. But all of that was part of the plan that he willingly submitted himself to. And now, here standing over 2,000 years past that event, now we know that he rose from the dead. We know that he ascended to heaven. And knowing everything that we know, we still consider the words that Joseph spoke so many years ago, and they ring very true for us in understanding what God's complete plan is. As Joseph spoke all those years ago, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that your word is sure and that we can rely on the Bible to know you and to know what we're supposed to do with our lives. I thank you, Father, that you move first in our lives and that as much as we might reach out and try to find you, Lord, that you are there to be found. Father, I thank you that at the perfect time, Jesus Christ came to this earth and died for us. I thank you that we can stand blameless before you despite our sin because Jesus paid the cost. Father, as we go on in our own lives, week after week, help us to respond well to the, the events that you, that you place us in. Help us to always ask the question, how can we glorify you when things change for us? Father, help us to reach out to you first as we go to try to restabilize our plans after they've been, they've been all shaken up. Help us to reach out to you first, to seek out your will for us and leave our own behind. Father, I pray that this message would serve to be an encouragement to those who know you. And for those who are maybe just checking this out for the first time, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them in a really powerful way. Father, that they would turn to you, that they would repent from their sins, trust in Jesus, and so be saved. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus and for his sake that I pray. Amen. Hey guys, I have a few discussion questions for you and it's, you know, we'll be basically back in the building this weekend with no restrictions and that's wonderful. But for those of you who are still gathered around in homes, I'm really hopeful that you're gathering together in groups and that you're bringing members of, 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 of the Christian family and people who have questions about Jesus together into your home so that you can talk about God and you can talk about your faith. And to kind of aid you guys with that, I have a few questions that I'd like you to discuss. First of all, I want you to think about what life plans have you had in the past that God has interrupted? For anybody who's been following God for more than five minutes, you know that there are things that you plan for yourself and God just put up a wall, right? So what big events in your life has God kind of interfered with and, and stopped you from? And my second question is what area in life do you struggle the most to submit to God's plan? I think we all have different areas that are pretty difficult. For some of us, it's money. For others, it's, you know, it's time. For other people, it's finding security in the relationships we have with people. For all of us, it's different, but we all struggle 
in some ways to submit ourselves to God's leadership. And so where are, the, where are some of those areas that you struggle? Thanks so much for being with us this week. Take care. Thanks for listening to Mountain View Church Audio. If you have given your life to Jesus today or would like to join, serve, or support Mountain View Church, please let us know. Email connect at mountainviewwhitehorse.ca. That's connect at mountainviewwhitehorse.ca. Lastly, feel free to connect with us through social. Just search at Mountain View Whitehorse. Have a blessed week.